Welcome to the feature series, How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, which celebrates the most successful entrant at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the 50th anniversary of his first event in 1969. Presented by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets, a long-standing partner of Team Penske, this 15-part series spans some of the greatest drivers, managers, mechanics, engineers, and the man himself, Roger Penske, to document the captain's vast influence on America's defining motor race, the Indy 500, and in many instances, the sport as a whole. We'll also be joined by a reporter who covered Penske's Indy debut a half century ago and some of his fiercest rivals, many of whom admit to being fans of the 82-year-old icon. Our guest on this episode of How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 is master mechanic and team manager Chuck Sprague, whose time at Team Penske from the late 1970s through the late 1990s helped produce countless IndyCar championships and Indy 500 wins. Chuck Sprague, really, really happy to include you in this How Roger Penske Changed the Indy 500 series, knowing that at least for younger mechanics like me coming up, look to you and some of your teammates, the Rick Reinemans and so on, just with absolute reverie for what you achieved at Team Penske. Before we get into maybe more of your background with the team and the evolution of what you did with Team Penske for more than 30 years, why don't we just start off with the same question I've been posing to everybody to start off with, and that's looking at how Roger will be attending the 50th Indy 500 since the team made its debut. What comes to mind on ways that RP or the team itself has maybe changed or influenced the Indy 500 over those 50 years? Yeah, I think the perspective is a little different from the inside is what from what most people are going to, to uh, <clears throat> perceive. Um you know, coming on board like I did in 1980, uh, the momentum was well underway in terms of uh, an increased level of professionalism across the board in the entire IndyCar sport. Uh, I know uh, back in those days, I think there were only two tractor trailers in the whole series and uh, a number of fifth wheel trailers and still a number of open rigs. And uh, of course, you know, it, it it's all related to uh, having the funds to upgrade to a, let's call it a, a, a better, more professional program. But in order to do that, you have to provide value to the people that you're looking to get your funding from. And I think that was the real card that Roger brought to the table was understanding that uh, there was a value to what we were doing in terms of the promotional aspects and the business to business aspects. And, that value turned into sponsorship and that sponsorship turned into professionalism. Looking at when you joined the team and the roles that you played Chuck as mechanic, chief mechanic, team manager, general manager for the final 10 years or so, maybe working back to that late 1970s, very early eighties era where you were a part of this program <clears throat> We have Rick, obviously, Rick Mears, becoming an Indy 500 winner. We've got Uncle Bobby, a uh, rather fun, mildly contested Indy 500. I don't know if you've heard about that one or not, but all kidding aside. <laughs> um, if you could bring us inside that early 
phase of when you were with the team and just what you saw that either made it unique or, or made it perform at such a high level? Um, well, Roger will be the first to tell you that everybody, you know, dismisses it, I think sometimes, but it is about the people. And uh, there's so many great people there over the years. And certainly when I rolled in the door, a lot of legendary characters there. You had uh, Jay Signori and uh, Earl McMullen and Carl Kanehofer. All these guys were basically first generation Penske racing, you know, and they were the ones that, you know, established that standard with Roger and established the dynamic to keep it going. I mean, that being said, uh, you know, my education was in industrial engineering where you know instead of looking at something as a mechanical device you look at an operation as a device and you know i was i was surprised that there were a number of things that were done on a for lack of better terms casual basis but it had to do with uh, manpower and while none of that was directly related to what actually happened to the car the supporting systems whether it was logistics or parts or whatever, you know, there was room to be gained there. And uh, as we went through the years, I know one of the first projects Roger gave me was uh, to uh, help design and and oversee the construction of a a new trailer for the team. And uh, when it was all done, I remember asking him, uh, you know, what do you think? He said, it looks nice, but will it make us faster? And I hadn't actually thought about that. But then when I did, I said, yes, it will. I said, there are things we can do now that we couldn't do before. And that was where, you know, the, uh, I think the uh, evolution really started is that uh, just giving yourself deeper capabilities and turning around your response time, um, you know, and that translated over the years into keeping spare parts and spare cars and whatever, you know, up to speed. And, uh, you know, the team itself, the drivers, the engineers, the mechanics, you know, were always at a premium level. There was no question about that. It was a matter of just, you know, how could we increase our depth? And uh, I think that the first really dramatic uh, demonstration of that was when, uh, Rick crashed in practice in 91 on Friday afternoon. And uh, when he got back from the hospital, we put him in the spare car and he turned the fastest lap of the month within six laps. And it's like, that's exactly where you want to be. You want the spare car to be as good or better than the primary, because if you're going to the spare car, everybody's, you know, there's a level of tension there and everybody's concerned. And when you can just put everything to rest instantly like that, it's like, okay, where's dinner? (laughs) And uh, as you know, it it paid off in a pole and a win. And that was a car that was not even considered to be the primary car. But the whole point is that we looked at every car the same way. And I think that was probably the biggest thing that has evolved over the years is this depth of capability to the teams, you know. Again, looking at 2006 when the team suffered that truck fire on the way out west, and then, you know, scrounged together a bunch of spare cars and spare parts and spare equipment and finished the race, I believe, first, second, and fourth or something like that. It just, that's where you really shine, I think, is, uh, is when the chips are down. One of the things that fascinates me, Chuck, about the, I guess, the start of your tenure at Team Penske 
and then what continued for, I believe, almost the entirety of your time there, it's the fact that custom cars, bespoke vehicles made by Penske cars in England, those were the tools that you used. And obviously there were years where it could have been a March or a Lola or Renard was the hot chassis to have. But throughout, I believe, the vast majority of your time there, every year it was a new car or an evolution of last year's car. There was nothing off the shelf. Everything was there to be evaluated, polished, improved, tweaked, you name it. Share some insights, if you could, about that culture of we make this, we own this. There's no uh, parts hotline to some other company and yell at them because the body fit was off a little bit on whatever thing that came out of the mold or, or whatnot. I have to believe there was a really strong, not only pride in ownership, but maybe just a, a different mindset of, all right, this this car is truly only going to be as good as we make it. You've hit a, a good point there. I mean, Penske Cars is the unsung hero of the history of Penske racing and is deserves far more credit than it's been given and, and gets to this day. I know I keep in touch with Nick Gouzet and who's the managing director over there and a good friend and a number of the other guys there. And, uh, you know, the, the job those guys did with nothing short of spectacular and, uh, like, like the team, they started off on a fairly basic level and as time went on, they evolved as well, you know, to full on CNC and composite capabilities and uh, you know we we work together as as a as a as a joint organization to you know capitalize on it where we could. I mean the the upside is you get something that nobody else has, but the downside is you have something that nobody else has. Uh, so it can it can play both ways, and it certainly did over time. And uh, you know people criticized us for. Uh, you know, having to go buy somebody else's car or having a car that nobody else had, it didn't seem like there was a no-win situation. No matter what we had, if we did well with it, it's because we had an advantage. But, you know, it, uh, in the case of the 1984, we hadn't even seen a 1984 March until late April, yet we, you know, acquitted ourselves quite well in the race, first and third, if I recall. Um, so the 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 capability of the team the drivers to adapt and to to move on to a a new a new protocol is there but at the same time you know there's years when it swings the other way for example 1982 1988 1994 i mean those are three particularly banner years but uh there are others as well you know where we uh you know we had something that that gave us that edge and capitalized on it uh, the biggest thing there, and it sort of relates to my previous comments, is that, uh, you know, Penske cars had to make everything, you know. I mean, early on we were buying transmissions, but in the later seasons, you know, even our gears and dog rings were bespoke to us. And uh, the supply issues there could be dramatic. So, you know, you couldn't run down and borrow, you know, a wishbone from somebody else because it isn't going to fit. So you had to manage that program very carefully. And you know, without a full-time parts guy in the early years, you know, basically we just considered everything that was in the parts room to be last year's stuff and restocked from scratch. And then over time, we began to realize that there were carryover parts, the other small things like bushings and, 
you know, anaerobar control mechanisms. And, and you think of them as being little things, but when you look at the total amount of production that Penske Cars was faced with, if you could see to it that those parts were carried over, then you could start diminishing the load that they had to carry. And that was something that, uh, you know, when I took over the team in late 1988, it was a high priority for me is that if Penske cars could spend more time building development parts and less time building routine replacement parts, we're going to be ahead of the game. And over the years, Nick Guzay and I, we had our moments, but we also worked out a lot of things. And and one of the biggest things was in 1992, we agreed that they would ship a car over turnkey rather than in kit form. And while it created a number of difficulties over there, we sent them all the support we possibly could. There were things that we sourced and built here in the U.S. And we would send those over, but we'd send extra people as well to make sure that the car was completely finished, plumbed, and even painted before it arrived here in the States. And the the upside of that was that uh, any issues there were with fitments or tooling or jig fixtures or anything like that got sorted out immediately not after they'd made six car sets of things that were incorrect. And uh, while it was a, uh, it was a, a difficult transformation to make, it, it paid off in huge, huge gains on down the road. Uh, the, the side effect from that was that each car came over. It was identical to the previous one. There wasn't any uh, customization going on between crews where they were deciding on plumbing and electrical wiring and and very small things everything was plumbed and wired and, and bolted up the same so if you had some kind of disaster where you damaged the rear end on one car and a tub on another car you could take the two ends and put them together and still be home for dinner so to speak so that was that was a thing that helped a lot, and and that went on during the same time. We were also doing our best to provide customer cars, which was, you know, we never really had a bespoke customer car operation. So a lot of that fell on my shoulders and the parts guy in Reading, and uh, particularly on the teams that were buying the cars. You know, we had to make it very clear to them that we wouldn't we wouldn't be a source of infinite parts. We would do what we could when we could, but you know, there was no guarantee. And if they came to us for something, we would have it. Um, interesting. But, uh, very, very interesting. Was, yeah, it, it was far more complex than people probably think it was, and it's it's you know it's a bygone era now. It's not doesn't exist anymore, and I I don't know that there's too many people at the shop that uh, even uh, were there for those days, and uh, it took an enormous amount of cooperation and coordination. Since 1954, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has served as the proving grounds for the world's most legendary helmet brand. From Jimmy Bryan to Mario Andretti and Elio Castroneves, Bell Helmets has and continues to protect some of the all-time greats. Follow the journey on social media at Bell Racing HQ or by visiting bellracing.com. One of the themes that I've explored, Chuck, with whether it's Myron or Elio, just across many levels, and I'd love to get your deep insights on this. It's one of consistency across eras, right? The batons were handed to you. You handed off batons to others. When I think back in particular on this this era of yours where it's custom cars year after year, it could be a, and I'm just generalizing, it could be a push rod front suspension one year, 
could be a pull rod the next it could be pick all the different ways uh that car development and ideas can change from year to year if we think in the modern era right we're in what year eight i think maybe year nine i'm losing track of the delara dw12 um the folks that turned wrenches on you know rear mechanics that turned wrenches on it in 2012 they could probably do it while asleep now and hit every bolt get everything right curious though how you helped maintain and others helped maintain the quality and consistency of car builds which then generates reliability and performance knowing that again the way this bolts together in 1981 could be massively different in 1982 it seems like there would have to have been chuck a culture of constant learning rapid learning but also high level execution since you really never had a chance to get comfortable with one car to the next well i i would i would disagree with that a little bit from the standpoint of the mechanics you know by the time you got through a half a dozen or maybe even a dozen winter tests with the new car as clive howell once said there's nothing older than last year's car and uh you know particularly if you're staying you know, if you're moving from a Penske car to another Penske car, or even from a March to a March, there's there's certain commonalities. And I think we all adapted pretty quickly. I mean, even at the, the first race, if, uh, you know, you go back to the days when we had a practice and qualifying engine and then a race engine, and the race engine would go in on, you know, Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening. If you went past any one of those teams during an engine change, if you were paying attention, the thing you would notice the most was the lack of conversation, which is, you know, just simply a, a, a demonstration of how every, how well everybody knows their job at that point. Because the, it, there wasn't any times when the cars transformed themselves. We didn't move from a NASCAR uh, chassis to an IndyCar chassis. It was just you know, one year to the next to the next. And, you know, the engine was always part of the stressed assembly and the rear suspension bolt of the engine. And there's only so many ways to do that. And uh, all these guys, just like drivers, they're adaptable. Um, if anything, it was it would be tougher to go back and drag out last year's car like we had to in 1987 and readapt to that. You know, it's like, holy cow. I mean, it was only six months ago, but everybody's trying to remember you know, how they did it. But in terms of the overall approach, that comes down again to the people. And as you, as you put it, the baton passing, you know, and uh, Ray Everham had a really interesting observation at Indy three years ago. He just finished an interview with Roger and he had told Roger, he says, you know, you probably have no idea how much you have influenced the history of racing and not just from the standpoint of results, but from the standpoint of people. Mm. You know, you hired Jay Signori. Jay Signori hired Ray Everham. Jay Signori hired me. Uh, I hired guys that are still down there, Penske Racing, you know. So uh, there's a certain amount of legacy just from the standpoint of employee turnover and, and hiring. But, you know, we always had the the really good guys were knocking on the door, you know, because you didn't, you didn't knock on the door at Penske Racing if you were just coming out of, you know, uh, you know, a weekender, an amateur racing operation, you, you were there because you'd done some years in IndyCar or K&M or Formula One and you had the creds. 
and uh, it, it was always pretty easy, you know, to find really good people because they were constantly, you know, applying to us. And uh, that's something I learned once, you know, I moved on from the racing team into a, a more sort of mainstream uh, duties is, is, is hiring everyday people and trying to get that, that high level discipline and instinct and consistency is not easy. But we were, again, very, very fortunate. And I, I would presume that a lot of the full-time teams in Indy were also as well. But in a way, you know, being isolated like we were, I think actually served to our advantage because, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing where if you had a bad day at work, you could roll your toolbox down the street to the next team. You know, if you were coming to us, you were making a commitment. Let's talk legacy a little bit, Chuck, as we wind down, knowing that, you are definitely a big part, I think, of folks' memories, both fans, those still within the IndyCar community, thinking about being there for such an incredibly rich era of Roger Penske's success at the 500. What comes to mind when you look back on this very significant, the bulk of your professional career in motor racing, what comes to mind as we look back on the team now celebrating 50 years at the Speedway. Oh, certainly very proud to be part of it. No doubt about that. I mean, uh, I think all of us that have spent time at Penske Racing look at it. It was it was our turn in that position and that none of us necessarily feel like we get any specific credit for any one thing that happened. You know, yes, everybody made individual decisions that collectively led to the success, but you know, the, the team was just this machine, this organization, this mechanism that was going to succeed one way or the other. And like anything, if there were bits and pieces that didn't fit and didn't perform, then, you know, they were, they were replaced, whether that was people or equipment or procedures or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, you, you look back at your career and somebody says, well, you know, he won Indy five times. Well, no one person's ever won Indy or any race, you know, it, it, it just doesn't work that way, you know, and it's, it's more a matter of, well, during my tenure there, the team accomplished this. And I think all of us look at, look back at it that way, because, you know, we remember the way we felt when we came in the door. I mean, to me, just being in the building at Penske racing was a bucket list item. You know, I'd been a fan when I was in junior high school and high school. And, uh, you know, just to be there was one thing, but to get hired and then to be able to serve in so many different positions and be there for what was an amazing period, like you said. I mean, you know, you're looking at all the different manufacturers of engines and cars and transmissions and so on and so forth. Yet the outcome was the entire field was within 2%, you know, and that's amazingly competitive, you know, and, and it still holds true to this day, but it's all being done with basically the same hardware, you know, other than engine choice. Um, but it's, uh, you know, you also look back at the, the people that were there before you, the people that were there, you know, when the rear engine car showed up in the Roadster era and, and all that, and all those guys, they had it figured out. They, they know what they were doing. It's, it's, Somebody reminded me the other day that my speech after the 85 Indy 500, I said something to the effect of, you know, a saluting 
all the guys that screw these things together. And, you know, I'd been to Indy, I think five years at that point, you know, and I'm looking at, you know, Jim McGee and, uh, Clint Bronner and Jack Starnes and, and Mike Devin and all these guys that have been around for eons and know forgotten more than I'll know about Indy cars. And, you know, they had their, they had their days too, but, uh, I think the, 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 uh, era that we're talking about the eighties and nineties, it was exponential growth of the sport, you know, and that's when you needed to be the kind of person that could adapt and, and change with the times. And, you know, we went from being, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 people to run two cars to, you know, a full shop of like 75 people to run three cars, including our own engine shop. And it, it wasn't the sort of thing that happened overnight. I used to say, you know, things may not change suddenly, but suddenly you notice they've changed mm. and, and we would adapt our procedures and change our organizations. And, you know, at one point we had a, a primary car chief mechanic and a spare car chief mechanic. And then we began to realize that if we're going to really get this fleet thing going the way we want it to be, we've got to have one mechanic who's responsible for two cars. One chief mechanic was responsible for both their cars. And he could allocate his crew time as he saw fit. But when we got to the racetrack, if we flipped a quarter and, and picked one car or the other, the, the concept was you wouldn't be disappointed because they'd both be the same quality. And, uh, you know, at the same time, there were just lower level things that you picked up from people that came before you. I, I remember saying something to Carl Kanoffer about trying to remember that I tightened every single nut on the car. And he said, well, if you just get in the habit that if you put a bolt in and you tighten it, then you know it's done. And it changes your philosophy the way you do things. Mm. You know, you don't have to remember it because you don't put it in unless you're going to finish the job. And, uh, you know, that carries on to this day because it still comes down to execution and reliability, doesn't it? Why am I learning about this? If you put a bolt in, tighten it uh, 20 plus years after I retired from turning bolts. Dang you, Chuck. No, that's brilliant, though. But again, I love stuff like that because it just speaks to a culture, a culture yeah, that was, was like so if, effective. If, if you're setting up a car, you know, you've got all these adjustable links with jam nuts on them. And if you loosen the jam nut, you back it off four or five threads so you can see that the nut's not tight. You know, if you're putting a wheel on, you leave the wheel nut on top of the tire until you have the impact wrench. And you don't even put the wheel nut on the hub until you have the wrench. You just don't do it. You know, and as soon as you divide, as soon as you've got that discipline going, then you don't you don't worry about what you left loose because, you know, you got the wrench in your hand before you go to put it on. You don't ever walk away from something that's not done. Let's close on one final question of legacy, Chuck. And you've spoken obviously with, with great respect for those who brought you in and helped teach you and get you up to speed. Are you able to connect with from time to time? There aren't many, but some of those I mentioned, Myron, uh, John Booslog, who, uh, would have been there and learning under you and others, Are you able to connect with any of the, uh, the ongoing guard from your era and not only see how they're doing, but maybe take some pride in knowing that Myron was a, effectively a gopher when he turned up and now he's in a senior leadership position, but just to see maybe some of the legacy that you helped create that's still going on today. Well, you're always happy to see people succeed. You know, at the same time, there's people that fell out of the system that you thought had real potential, 
but for some reason just decided it wasn't their cup of tea or they rose to a certain level and that's all they wanted to do, which is fine as well, as long as that's acknowledged and everybody's comfortable with it. You know, some people want to be the head banana. Some people just want to be, you know, the guy that keeps the motor coach the nicest or, um, you know, Earl McMullen never wanted to do anything beyond be the guy that was responsible for transmissions. You know, he wasn't interested. And, uh, what, I came in the door, he was basically the den mother for IROC. And, uh, that was not Earl's role in life at all, you know? So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it certainly makes you proud, but you, you like to think, yeah, well, I saw that coming. You know, and, uh, you know, you could see people progressing as they went on. I mean, one of the guys that worked for IROC and then he worked for me is a guy named Rich Lobenstein, who's now in charge of all the sleds on the Olympic bobsled team. Wow. You know, and has made a difference. You know, you talk to the athletes, they talk about the level of preparation of the sleds now. You know, so it doesn't necessarily have to be still within the company, but yeah. It's good to see those guys doing well. You know, you got guys in there that are crew chiefs and team managers and stuff. And it, it's it's always kind of amusing is that, you know, as as all of us came up through the ranks, our perspectives were different. And and, you know, Myron, God bless him. I mean, you know, he always sort of came off as being the, the shop union steward. You know, he would come in and go, well, all the guys say this and all the guys <laughs> say that. And, it's like, well, that's fine, except you're the only one in my office telling me this, you know. And uh, but I always took I always took his comments to heart because he was very sincere about everything. And and then in 2006, when they formed the sports car team and he got tapped to run the team, I showed up at Lime Rock, and you know, of course, everything's spit polished, clean under the tent. And the guys are working on the cars, and there's Myron in a little back room there looking at the the pit boom, you know, for the fueling and, and air hoses, which has been snapped neatly in half. Wow. You know, it's like, you know, and he's just got his hands on his hips with this disgusted look. And I walked up <laughs> quietly behind him. I went, you know, the cars really are the easiest part, aren't they? <laughs> he just starts shaking his head. Laughing. He says, yeah. He says, we're just trying to get through the weekend. You know, the outer guys come in and they get tangled up in our air hose and break this boom. You know, now I know what people talk about when they say that, you know, I just wanted to drain the swamp and now I'm up to my butt in alligators. You know, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the cars, they're in the hands of capable people. And as long as you give them the information and the equipment and the tools that they need, you know, it's their job to take care of it. You know, and it is, is, as everybody moved up through the ranks, it's hard to let go of being the chief mechanic. It's hard to let go of being you know, the team manager, it's hard to let go of whatever it was you did, but you have to, you know, and, uh, if they reach out to you, fine, you know, you can offer them some perspective, but in most cases, you know, they understand your train of thought when you were in the job and, you know, their situation's a little bit different. So you can't really go in there and take a look at things and say, well, I don't understand why you're doing this because you don't have the whole picture. You got to let them, you got to let them roll with it. But at the same time, you know, we all find ourselves making the same classic mistakes, you know, and, and I think anybody that's a, a student of the sport should know unfair advantage inside and out, you know, Mark's first book or his only book, I guess. And I forget exactly what it was. It was it was early 90s and we'd been through some development program and finally realized what was going on. And it was exactly 
what are the things that Mark talked about in his book? Wow. Exactly. You know, and I realized that I said, I cannot believe we are making the same mistake 25 years later. You know, I mean, we solved it, but we should have known, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. You know, sometimes you look for the most complex solution first, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, any organization where you can document and, and establish procedures and, and, uh, you know, maintain that continuity, that's a huge strength. But, you know, uh, I think the last time I was in the race shop was back in September and I saw a lot of the guys, you know, the guy running paint shop is still the same guy that was running it in Reading. And, uh, but, you know, just seeing how they do their sub assembly stuff and, and, you know, the way the cars are treated between races where it's, it's a lot of specialization. It's, it's an inevitable thing that we started that process years ago. When I walked in the door, the chief mechanic rebuilt his entire car, except for the engine. He did the gearbox, the uprights, everything short of the bodywork in the engine. And then as time went on and things got to, you know, where they're being pushed and worked harder and harder and harder, you needed a level of consistency so you could figure out what the problems were. Were they assembly errors, area errors, or were they design problems? And if three different people are putting the same thing together and you're getting three different results, well, you're not really sure where to look. So we did start a, a specialization deal where, you know, there was one guy that did all the uprights and a couple of guys that did the transmissions and, you know, some people lament that the loss of the, you know, the, the fabled chief mechanic, you know, the all rounder who did everything. Yeah. And, you know, but that is, you still, if you're the, if you're the chief mechanic for a car, you still understand everything that happened. You still know that everything that happened is right. You know, because you know, the people that do it and, and they gave you the synopsis of what they did or a report when you got the piece, whatever it was. But uh, it was the same thing in management. I remember Roger asking me one day what springs were in the cars. And I couldn't recall off the top of my head. And he said, well, you should know what springs in are, are in there. I said, well, I know they're the correct springs. <laughs> you know, and he sort of gave me that fair enough look. Mm. You know, it's like, I don't know what the number is, but I guarantee you they're the ones that we, that we want. So, you know, you, it's impossible to know everything, but, you, you know, you rely on those people and that's what the structure does. I mean, you look at the level of professionalism these days and, you know, to get back to the original point of the conversation, that's pretty much spread through the entire paddock, hasn't it? That might be the perfect closing point, Chuck, in no disrespect to any of the other teams, obviously Chip Ganassi been around as a team owner now for what for almost 40 years 30 years 30 years uh yeah. you look at the Foyt team team has evolved quite a bit there's still some familiar faces though the Craig Baranuskis and whatnot but they've obviously been around for a really long time but for talking about single organization set an early disruptive and higher level and has maintained that there's only one. Well, somebody's got to be first, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did my best in my career, Chuck, to make sure that last was taken care of. You know, you do, you want to prop good folks up like yourself. All kidding aside, thank you for taking some time, my friend. And I know folks are going to enjoy this among the other conversations with those who have been a big part of helping team Penske become really the gold standard at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something special to look back on. It's uh, it it completes your life in a lot of ways. There's there's other things to life, obviously, but uh, you know, you you're you're always going to be able to look back and said, you know, I was there when that happened. I I don't look back and say I did that, but you know, I was part of that when it happened. And uh, you know, people just uh, some people, you know, people that aren't into racing or haven't been around it probably don't even begin to understand what it means. But certainly people that have been around it for, you know, decades recognize, you know, certain events and certain uh, organizations and, you know, whatever it might be as landmarks. Uh, unfortunately, today is a landmark. 25 years ago, we lost Senna. But uh I mean, there's another bucket list thing, you know. I was there when he drove one of our cars. I mean, holy cow. How cool is that, you know? And then the guy sent me a Christmas card the following year. Really? Yeah, yeah so pretty special. <laughs> but uh, Talk about making an impression. Uh, yeah. The world's it was, it was, it, greatest oh, yeah, driver. It, 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 yeah, we were, we were, it's like, okay, let's see what this guy can do. And. You know, I mean, uh, they made a nice video a couple of years ago. I think it was the 25 year, so you know, anniversary of that test. And uh, you know, Roger wasn't there, but I I fed him a lot of the stuff that he used in his presentation. And you know, I, we enjoyed it. We we thought it was awesome. We never for a moment thought that you know we were going to have him driving for us full time. But it was something to watch. And you know, to this day, Mears and I really enjoy conversation. You know, it's just. You didn't even have to look. You could just listen, you know, and you just look at each other and, you know, without even walking out of the truck, it's like, this guy's good, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but, you know, those are the kind of moments that, uh, even though they're not anything to do with the success of the team per se, but they add to your, to your life and to your experiences. And the way you experience those are you're in the right place at the right time. And that was how Roger Penske changed the Indy 500. You can catch this series and more than 500 episodes at the brand new marshallpruittpodcast.com site. All brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and Bell Racing Helmets. <laughs>